the marinade. There's no O in marinade. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> the marinade. Marrow. Marrow. Marinade. Bone marinade. The marinade. The marinade. With Jason Earl. I've been all around the world And guess what, it's all the same You could see it all from the window of the plane And I've had so many flames And been burned by so many flames Guess what, a twin bed is plenty of space At the end of the Welcome day. to The Marinade, a free-flowing conversation about the creative process with creative people. This is episode 138, and our guest is Jesse Daniel Edwards. Jesse's a songwriter from California who now makes his home in Nashville. His latest record is called Violencia, and it is, as you will hear in this episode, a wild and wonderful ride. Edwards has lived an incredible life. He's gone from growing up without television or internet to leaving home at 16 to tour managing the likes of Jason Isbell, Lucinda Williams, and Morrissey, uh, and in the meantime, making these unique and fascinating records. This is a far-reaching conversation that dives into inspiration and process and, and helps make sense of life's major decisions. Everyone, it is my great honor to present my conversation with Jesse Daniel Edwards. I'm so happy I think I might cry. I've got a good coat for my chills and a good girl for my thrills and a very good excuse for my ills. And I've got almost too much time. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to chat. Dude, thank you so much for doing this. Your record is such a wild ride, and I am so excited to dig into it with you. Thank you very much. I, I agree. It's kind of a it's still kind of a wild ride for me to listen to it. <laughs> I've been uh I've been driving around with I always burn a CD once I get these records from you know publicists and I give it a shot. I, I burn a CD. I listened to it once. If it grabs me, I listen to it again. With yours, it's just it was instant. And I'm just I was just like, oh shit. Yeah, I gotta talk to this guy. This is gonna be <laughs> a lot of fun. So thank you so much. Thank you for the record and thank you so much for taking the time. Um man, for I, listening. Yeah, for sure. And and for folks listening to this, like make sure you dial it's it's out now. So by the time folks hear this, they'll, you know, they can go out and get it if they haven't already and and just can't say enough about it. Um you know, I, I want to talk about the record, but dude, you've lived such a life. So I'd also like to talk about your life a little bit leading up to the record if we can. Um, and it's, it, and I think, you know, I talk a lot about religion on this show just because of my own upbringing and the trauma I have from it. And uh, it's the timing of this conversation, I think is important for, for me selfishly because I just had this experience yesterday where as my day job, I'm a, a middle school and high school educator. And, um, 
I'm kind of in between, you know, careers right now. I don't know what I'm going to do. Like shit is wild here in Florida uh, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I actually entertain the idea of working for a religious school, a Christian school specifically that's new and, um, you know, not something that I normally would be okay with. Like normally I, I, but there was something about these guys. I was like, they don't seem that bad. <laughs> they seem, they seem open-minded. And then they were talking about God is love and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and I was like, man, yeah, I, I can dig that. Like I can get behind all of this. And then I went back for a second interview. And during the second interview, then the misogyny came out, then the bigotry came out, then the stuff that like really fucked me up about growing up in the church started to come out. And it's just, I, I felt like I had made progress, you know, and then I just backslid back in that, that progress. So when I was, you know, getting ready for this conversation, I, I was like, I'm not going to talk too much about religion. I'm not going to talk too much about religion. And then that happened to me yesterday. So I really want to talk about your upbringing and then sort of like your relationship with religion and spirituality and so forth. Wow. Yeah, that sounds great. And uh, I'm, a, I'm an open book uh, as, as per your shirt. <laughs> Very good shirt. Where, where are you in Florida? You. I'm in Orlando. Okay. Yeah. I was just talking to a, a friend about where she was doing, she was going through blood samples for the, the pulse shooting. If you remember, if you recall that. Oh, I'm, and, uh, unfortunately I remember it all too well. I remember the sound of the sirens. Yeah, but she worked in a lab doing blood samples to help some of the survivors and some of the injured from that occurrence. And she also is a sole survivor. And I think being in the South, there are a lot of people like that, like yourself, that have come through a church upbringing and have gotten to the other side of that, you know, loss of faith, becoming certainly disillusioned, but then also still very much seeking that that essence of faith and maybe that spiritual life. And there aren't a lot of answers in this part of the world for those, those people. And so I, I, I was talking to her about, wouldn't it be a wonderful if there was some sort of outreach to sort of bring these people mm. into some sort of fold and, and to, to care for these people and to help them transition to let's face it real life. So, yeah, I, I would love to certainly talk about that or whatever's on your mind or heart to discuss. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in, your upbringing in California and like one of the things that, that I was thinking about as I was doing the research for this conversation is, you know, while I grew up in the church, I had access to popular music and books and TV and all that and films. I mean, my dad was taking me to like even like PG-13 and R-rated films at a fairly young age. Like he, I was exposed um, culture wise to plenty. Now, <sighs> What I'm interested in, because I think that it impacted how I processed faith and religion, right? I think it it brought me to a place of doubt quicker than I may have if I didn't have access um, to some of those things. I'm curious about like your headspace when you don't have access to those things and you're a kid and you're very clearly a creative person who had to have at least some innate sense of that creativity at a young age, like what was in your head at the time growing up? Well, I think we had a lot of the same questions that anybody would have, especially in adolescence, as you start to attempt to establish your own independence and you start to try to learn to think for yourself and you start to try to envision a larger 
horizon, a, lar a larger world than maybe the one in which you've been raised. You know, I think that popular music, modern music, certainly film, uh, uh, novels, books, documentaries, anything like that is very helpful in assisting with that sort of coming of age. I grew up sort of creating and living in a bubble, you know, along with my siblings. And so we didn't really have that outside influence. We didn't have any sort of backdrop or, or, or sense of context, but we still had the same impetus and we still had the same sort of unrest and that same sort of sense of internal driving outward. But I think, you know, to help, you know, deal and, and confront with, uh, deal with and confront those urges and instincts, you know, we sort of had to, you know, reinvent the wheel a thousand times over. So we were kind of, you know, using what was at hand, which was just some hand-me-down instruments from my grandparents. And we had a lot of classical music. We had some hymnal music. We had a lot of classical literature. And so I think we were digging a lot deeper and a lot more aggressively than maybe we would have if we had had Bob Dylan or if we had had even the Beatles or if we had even proto-punk music or, or yeah, a PG-13 movie. So I think a lot of it was just sort of guesswork. A lot of it was taking place in the dark. And then when I left home at 16 and actually was able to get my hands on some of these materials in, in real life, it was, it was severely overwhelming. And I didn't really know where to begin, but I also had just an insatiable appetite to absorb as much of, of it as I could. And, you know, I, I don't think it was until maybe 10, 15 years after that, that I, I finally reached a, a sense of stasis where it was like, okay, let's throttle it back to just cruising altitude now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have to try to soak up everything every single second, but I did. It did catapult me into into just sort of diving the deep end for a long time, which I think is a big part of the the frantic sound of of what I was doing even back then. I was listening to some early demos, and it's not that dissimilar from Violencia or from stuff I've done since. It's just there's a there's an aggression there that's just it's kind of. It, it's kind of just the pace that's demanded by by needing to kind of get caught up. Oh wow, that's man, that's there's a lot there. Um, okay, so what are like the the what is the subject matter and what are the themes of the music you were making as a kid with your family? Yeah, a lot of it was uh, kind of to harken back to what. I was alluding to earlier, it, a lot of it was dealing with uh, certainly trying to find my way out of this little community. It was trying to tackle uh, bigger philosophical ideas that I had no inclination. I mean, what that might, what that might be. I mean, I was, I was asking big questions, but uh, you know, without any sort of framework there, there was, I hadn't really been, been exposed to any, philosophical writers at that point yet uh, i read through a lot of the classics but um you know humanist ideas i mean were pretty foreign to me so it was a lot of a lot of questioning and a, certainly a lot of you know trying to trying to make sense of the the spiritual disparity you know we grew up you know my dad was very religious very uh militaristic he was a military guy so street household and and trying to make sense of that, but then also all these other 
things that were going on mentally and spiritually that I didn't really have a name for yet. And so it was just kind of a lot of raw, sort of unfiltered questioning of, of everything and things that I was even daring to tackle things, you know, like my own sexuality or, you know, what happens when we die, mm -hmm. things like that, that, you know, at the time I felt very emboldened by being able to ask the question because it, it was all pretty, everything was pretty taboo to us growing up. I mean, we couldn't talk about anything. So being able to think about it and even even just individually in the privacy of my own uh, creation with the piano or the guitar, it was it, it was kind of an act of rebellion or it felt that way to me. And but it also felt acceptable. I, I finally had discovered an outlet where it could exist for the first time ever. I mean, I was very quiet as a, as a child. All of us were my six siblings and myself and just simply because we weren't really able to talk about anything. So finally, here was a way to not only think about it, not only discuss it and put it out there, even albeit sort of a one-sided conversation, but I was kind of shouting it out, you know, at top volume. And no one seemed to be, I didn't, you know, I didn't seem to be getting into any trouble for it. <laughs> I mean, yet. that's, yeah, that's interesting. Cause I, you mentioned your father being militaristic and religious. And so I, I was curious about that. Like, was he encouraging this, creation was he just kind of condoning it like what was what was that relationship like in terms of you're making this kind of these acts of rebellion essentially was he seeing it that way well conveniently he wasn't really there for the early years so <laughs> by the time he came in into the into the family fold after uh, some pretty active deployments most for most of my childhood uh -huh. You know, I was already sort of in an advanced state of rebellion, <laughs> and so it was kind of that—that that was a big reason, I think, why I left home so early. You know, we just couldn't see eye to eye. We we just had a, a very difficult relationship back then. My mother was the one that raised us uh, for most of childhood. Uh, mm -hmm. My dad was certainly supportive financially. He was in between deployments. You know, he certainly made an effort, but I didn't really come to know my dad until. Uh, my mother passed away and until we had all gotten a lot older. I think it was difficult for him talking to children. I don't think he knew really what to say to us. And there were certainly so many of us and he only really knew how to manage troops. And so since there was such a large group of us, I think he just applied the same MO to <laughs> keeping order in the household when he was home. And then when he was gone, it would sort of return to this other equilibrium that we had with my mom, who was very creative, was not religious, but was mm. sort of quasi-spiritual, maybe, you know, some sort of modern agnostic in a sense. And she was very encouraging of whatever we would do and very, and any sort of artistic or create, creative endeavor, she was very, you know, she very much believed in that. And so, you know, and I was also kind of protective of my lyrics, you know, I, I would play the music, but I would sort of write the lyrics down and I would, I would, have outlets at school, you know, when I bring the, my guitar to school or, or at talent shows or with my, my first little middle school band. But I don't know if they ever heard any of the lyrics until I was much older. And by then I had, I had some ammunition, you know, I'd heard some, I'd gotten into punk music. I had made some, some demos. I'd returned back home. So I think it was a little bit more fully formed, but my dad certainly came around uh, when I, when we all got older, as I mentioned. And I think you know, he, he came to see me in Mobile on a recent tour, maybe two months ago, and he was in tears, you know, and these are all songs that are very anti-gun violence. They're very anti-war. 
They're very anti-organized religion. They're very, they're very much calling out by name. You know, some of this isn't on violence, but they're very much calling out by name, like the fentanyl crisis, you know, things that are, you don't necessarily hear in, in, in maybe more comfortable sounding music, stuff that's, that's not really fun to talk about in any circumstance. But he was just, he came up to me and he was, he, he just brought me into a big embrace and he, he was just saying, you know, whatever you've done, you've, you finally figured out, you know, how to, how to say what's on your heart and to talk about things that are difficult and thank you for doing what you do. Wow. And he was just in tears and, 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 you know, but it's a, it's a, it's a story arc that's taken three decades to get to that place where a father and son can have that conversation. But, you know, it's not lost in me that that early sort of quiet rebellion growing up and sort of the resistance that he provided. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, probably a pretty formative part of how we all ended up here. Man, yeah. I'm so happy for you that you had that moment. I mean, that story so often doesn't end or doesn't have that kind of a a resolution, right? So often it has quite the opposite res re resolution or it's never, or it never has a moment, you know, it just kind of goes away for you to have that with your father. That's so beautiful. And, and it illustrates the power of, of music, right? And the beauty of music and its ability to bridge gaps and its ability to, to bring people together. That's a big gap. And for your father to see the beauty in it and it speaks not only to the work that you've done, but also to just like the greater beauty and power of music. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Yeah. It, it does feel sort of like a minor miracle, at least in my relationship within family. So it's uh yeah, I'm very, very grateful. Very grateful. That's awesome, man. Okay. So <laughs> I'm really interested. I've always been interested in busking culture in general. Um, I, one of these days I'm going to do this where I'm going to do a podcast series where I talk to people who busk and put it all together. And I don't know what that story looks like, but I've had this idea bouncing around for like six years where I really want to, I, every time I see somebody busking, which doesn't happen much in Florida, we don't have much of that culture in some places. It's not legal and that kind of thing. In Orlando, it's kind of a gray area in terms of its legality. And so you don't see a much of it. Jacksonville, you'll see a little bit of it. Um, but we don't get it as much here as, as some places, but I am fascinated by busking. And I'm, I'm also fascinated by the fact that you left home at 16. That sounds terrifying to me, right? Like if I think back uh, on my life, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't even close to emotionally uh, mature enough to go out of my home, you know, like, how what was that feeling like once you once you made the decision you touched on why you made the decision what was the feeling like when you made that decision and and like how did you get by what were what were you doing well i i, I was in school so i i left high school early and went straight into college at 16 mm. and i remember walking out of my little small town high school i was 15 and a half when i left and I, I had tested out of high school and part of the final, I don't really even know why it was required, but you had to go around, at least I did. I had to go around to the, each of my classes and get signed out for, for the last time. So it was, it was like Weird. in the middle of the morning and I just went around to my each teacher and had them sign me out and they, they had no idea. They just said, where are you going? I said, well, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm leaving. And I had an official little transcript 
and and, and I remember uh, I had a my physics teacher. He he just he looked up and he he kind of was had failing eyesight and which we made we exploited and made great use of in the back. <laughs> but he he kept looking at me and I think it was the first time he actually saw me. Up until then, I had just been sort of you know part of the the general background noise. But you know by by taking a stand, I was finally being noticed as a human being, and that that stuck with me. But when I started school and I immediately dived right, dove right into philosophy and just and world religion and and just trying to get mm. some of the bigger questions finally, you know, answered and dealt with. But of course, it only left me with more questions. So, in any case, I I was in school. I had a scholarship, so I I, I was I was I was pretty okay. I was doing okay. It was kind of an easy transition in that in that regard because I still had some structure. I hadn't started busking yet. Mm. A lot of my siblings left home around the same age. And it was just the feeling of kind of just, and it wasn't that we were unloved. It wasn't that it was so difficult. I mean, you know, everyone you talk to has had, has, has had difficulty. And in this society, in this country, in this, in, you know, in, in Western culture, you know, we have our own sort of laundry list of despairs, you know, I mean, especially growing up and especially, you know, as widespread as the Judeo-Christian influences within our society and especially with you know broke the broken home thing you know that was going on in the 90s like where, where the divorce rate finally surpassed the marriage rate you know and it was everyone was coming from a broken home everyone was messing around with with whatever drugs you know which were becoming very easy to get in pill form especially in a small town where i grew up everyone was hooked on video games you know uh, columbine had just happened everyone was disillusioned everyone i, I think in where i grew up sense just the fabric coming apart you know just of, of of whatever order the music reflected it the movies reflected it so everyone everyone has stories of of woe and 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 you know i've been to other countries where you know people are living in piles of garbage yeah. you know or, or people are fighting off rats for the carcass of a dead dog in the street to eat and it's you know it's a different it's it's a different category of hardship but i mean americans you know, especially in the middle class, especially of a certain generation. I mean, I think everyone I talk to, you know, ha has has stories as weird or as difficult as mine. I mean, yes, we grew up without the internet or without, you know, video games and stuff like that. But, you know, I think we, the, the, the one thing that made us different, I think, was, you know, we had such a big family, which is always a rarity, you know, in, in modern times. I think it's even more rare now. So I think that was really the the big motivator. You know, there were so many of us; it just felt crowded. I think a lot. You know, there was just a a sense of needing to drive outward, not from a place of of untoward angst or or complete dissatisfaction. I mean, certainly there were elements of restlessness, and but you know, I I, I really think it was just we felt we could, you know, and we mm -hmm. we felt it was just it was needed. Our parents gave it their blessing in so much as they could. My, both of my sisters left home. Uh, at that age, my, my sister Christina left home at 16 and, and just moved down the street from the family home and was living in an apartment by the railroad tracks. And my other sister, Olivia, who was 13, just went to live with her. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, if that gives you any sort of idea, but you know, I, it was just, you know, I think for me, it was, I needed to just, I wanted to get started. You know, I, I, was, I was so bored in school I hated every moment of it, and I just wanted to get started with with living 
my life and just seeing what was out there. You know, I just, I couldn't even help it. It, it felt like a foregone conclusion that I would just immediately get started doing whatever I, I needed to do. That's really interesting. So did you, did you think then, like at that point, did you think I'm going to make music like a, a life out of music? I didn't even know enough to even consider the possibility. I mean, we, we, I didn't have the internet, you know, Yeah. even when we had the internet when I was, I guess we got the internet when I was 15. So, but it was, it was the dial up thing. We lived in the mountains. I mean, it was useless, you know I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was also the early days of the internet. That wasn't, it wasn't like you just pulled up YouTube and had everything at your fingertips. Back then, my favorite website was this website that was, it was like this homemade affair, like a lot of the web was back then. And it was devoted to how Britney Spears was a covert government operative <laughs> sent out into the public to brainwash society. And I religiously followed this website. Oh my gosh. But that was about all that you could do with the internet. Yeah. It was even think, chat rooms and forums. So all, all I would do is I would just read these these paragraphs that someone had written about how they thought that, that Britney Spears was a was a, a, a government agent. But that was the so so yeah. there, there wasn't any information basically uh of, of much value. I mean, I thought it was valuable at the time. But you know, when I was 14, 15, <laughs> I just was like, oh my God, this is this is yes, this makes total sense. But uh, you know, I think it, it occurred to I've been a late bloomer in just about everything. It, it didn't mm. occur to me. I've always just had music around. I've always played music. My first memory is I'm playing the piano. Um, it's been my, uh, it, it's, it's, it's how it, it's, it's in the same way that I brush my teeth or I, I eat or uh, it's, it's as natural as breathing. It's just always something that's been around my life. I don't even view it as me doing it. I feel like I'm just sort of hooking into it and but it's always around it's just hovering in the room mm. so and I've, I've, I've always had sort of a poetic approach with you know the music being very separate from the lyrics but always being sort of able to to dance around both but turning it into a, a lifestyle or a career in, in a larger sense I mean when I was in school when I was in college at 16 you know I, I was so obsessed with philosophy but I was still writing music and writing poetry but you could definitely see the philosophical bent that was sort of winding its way into it you know it's kind of just my my lifelong journal but turning that into anything beside that i mean it never even occurred to me to to how, how to get a band going how to get gigs how to get a set list how to even really sing or get on a stage i mean i was so far away from figuring that out it, i hadn't even it hadn't even crossed my mind which is how I ended up busking in the first place was because it just seemed like the only logical way to actually go out and do anything with all of the, the music that had sort of accrued over, over from say 16 to 19. Uh, you know, it didn't occur to me to try to, well, and even then it wasn't necessarily, you weren't sending emails to clubs to get booked. I mean, back then it was still kind of like you had to have an in, you had to call, you had to show up at the mm. club, you had to do the open mic thing. What you had to maybe you had a friend that could get you on a bill. I mean, but that was, you know, so I just started busking because just kind of like moving out, it just, I, it had to come out. I had to go do something. And it just was, it wasn't maybe the most elegant solution. It maybe wasn't the most sensible, certainly not the most lucrative or, or sustainable, but it was something I could immediately do. And, you know, so I think, you know, kind of, kind of by a peripheral approach, which I think, is how most things have happened to me. 
you know, I, it, it wasn't until I had sort of a philosophical burnout and an existential crisis, you know, from just being too young in college and just throwing myself in the deep end. Mm. It wasn't until I had just completely washed out of that, that, that trajectory that I had put myself on that I started to look at, okay, well, music, I mean, and I was in a, I was in Florida, actually, I was at a place called, uh, what was the name of that place? It was in Pensacola, Florida. It was a DIY vegan spot. And mm. I mean, everyone from Jonathan Richmond to P. Lander Z had played this little dive bar spot. You know, Matt, I don't even know if these places, places like this even still exist. You know, I think there, there are little pigeonholes on the internet where these, these people find an outlet. But back then, I mean, that was, that was the only place you got to see it, you know, but I saw a band that was on tour. I mean, it didn't even seem like a tour. It just seems like they were living mm. out of the van and they just loaded in. And I, I was maybe, man, I was 19. I was 18 or 19. I was just sort of bumming around and I saw it. And I, it was it was only then that I, I thought, hey, I do music. I could do something kind of like this. And I don't know why I didn't think about it before. Oh, but wow. I think, I think it was just because information was so, it just wasn't forthcoming back then. And I, I wasn't part of any scene. I didn't know anything about cool music. So I, I think I was just, I was just way out. My orbit was just way out. So it didn't occur to me until, until, much later and I had to first, you know, be broken in so many ways existentially to, to finally kind of look at look at music as maybe something more than just my own private journal, I guess. So fascinating. What year is that when you're 19 and you have that realization? That would have been, let's see, I think it was around when I saw that it, it was 2001, two maybe. Okay. All right, so you're like just a couple years younger than me, it sounds like. So maybe 03, I guess, by the math. Okay. 0203. Okay. So I yeah, because I I can I can see I wasn't in music then, but like I could see that I, I can see that scene so well that you're describing, right? Yeah. Like I was just a fan, but like I can I can put myself in that place, you know, so well. I, all right. So how do you get from from there? to tour managing the likes of Morrissey and Jason Isbell and Lucinda Williams. Like, is that later? Is that around the same time? Like, how does this happen? It's quite a bit later after, after kind of doing music and not really knowing how to get shows. So busking and, you know, then eventually, you know, nothing happens in a straight line when you're trying to figure things out. It's kind of, you know, there's a year where it's just, you know, you're surfing and bar backing at your friend's bar or there's, you know, a whole year like that or a year yeah. where you're crashing on your brother's friend's grandma's couch. You know, so there was a lot of that all the while I was writing, but I mean, not very prolifically and not not very intentionally. You know, occasionally ideas would come up. It was before I'd moved to Nashville and I hadn't really learned about discipline or professionalism about songwriting. I was just sort of letting it come out you know stream of consciousness I, I I didn't even own any instruments you know I just I, whatever was around I'd pick it up you know I, I was always writing my journal or, or doing poetry but eventually my uh, my brother and I had enough songs and we had met a friend in California who was kind of the inverse of us he had a he had a very deep understanding of a lot of classic music and was a great musician, great singer. So he was able to kind of complete our little trio. And we just took that little busking show on the road. And we we basically got in this 1974 VW bus that my mom had loaned us. And we 
for for the express purpose of this this trip to Nashville to go and busk and just you know I mean when you're you know 20 years old you, I mean you have that kind of freedom so we just went and you know we never came back we just kept on we kept on going so <laughs> we ran out of money eventually it just all fell apart the our collaborator just kind of left you know it, it got it just hit bottom and he just left and my brother and I eventually went our separate ways and I just have sort of kept going and, and trying to figure it out, you know, as I've, as I've gone along and, you know, Nashville, y y the story certainly wouldn't be complete without giving Nashville its due. I mean, that's where I am even as we speak, it's always been a pretty, it's been a pretty important place for me. And I don't, I don't know why certain places are more important than others. Maybe it's mm -hmm. geological, you know, maybe it's spiritual, maybe it's, yeah. it's culture, you know, micro cultures, but you know, Nashville is a pretty unique place and back then it was still kind of gritty it was very bohemian so when we bust through because when we were busking around california people always would say hey you guys got to go to nashville you guys sound like nashville because we had acoustic instruments and three-part harmony it was kind of i don't even know how to describe it it was kind of folky but it was free you know that the americana designation came along much later i think that was sort of invented by it was just sort of an invention of the music industry yeah. more or less but back then it was kind of folky. So eventually we busked our way to Nashville. And of course, as soon as we started busking here, everyone here was, you know, they just said, oh, you guys sound so West Coast. You sound so California. So we were sort of caught in a cultural identity crisis. <laughs> but it, for some reason it stuck with me because I think because of how bohemian it was and because it was a music town. It was kind of like if you, you know, saying you really liked, uh, I don't know what's a good example. They say you really love basketball. And it's like there's just a, a town that's just big enough where everything revolves around basketball. You know, it's not a hobby. It's everything revolves around this one thing. So I'd never seen anything like that. And I had fallen in love with the South because of just the soul. You know, I mean, I've always been sort of craving that soul element. And the South has it. Mm -hmm. You know, Nashville, I think, has lost a lot of it as it's become more gentrified and and, and more popular. Um, ironically, it's a lot of Californians moving out here who, oh, we love Nashville. And as soon as they get here, this is in recent times, uh, kind of COVID on, the, as soon as they get here, they want to change it and make it like L.A. So it's <laughs> sort of lost a little bit, you know, actually. <laughs> That's interesting. That way, it kind of, okay, this is a very familiar cultural identity crisis again, but um yeah, so I I always tried to come to get back here, and after so many years, I eventually did make it back here. And uh, John, the songwriter John Prine, his manager Al Bonetta, took me under his wing. He saw us busking, my brother and I, and he kind of kept uh, kept track of me. Kind of had taken me under his wing. He was the first mentor that I'd ever had, and I always felt a little suspicious and guilty because. He would give me so much and he would he would speak into my life. And I always felt like, what am I what am I doing to deserve this? You know, maybe it's that that Judeo-Christian sense of of guilt or, oh, yeah. or, or or transactional sort of generosity. But I, you know, he he just really just no questions asked, just kind of helped me become a songwriter. And he did everything from put me up in songwriting sessions down on Music Row. Uh he had me meet with I mean, he knew everybody that he had the keys to the city. So he just put me in rooms with all these people. And I was too young and too inexperienced and too unrefined to really do anything with it at the time. 
but it certainly planted the seeds and shaped me for what I would become. I, I don't think it would, I don't think if he saw me now, I don't think he would know what to make of me. He, he since passed, but I, you know, I took, I took everything from that and just applied it in a different way. But in any case, when he did pass, I came out here. One of his, one of his last requests was that I perform at his memorial. So I came out here and I hadn't been doing music at, at that point. I was working at a, uh, uh, an outdoor education camp in the mountains, you know, in a town of, like 300 people. But I dusted the guitar off. I came out. <clears throat> I performed at his memorial one song. And, you know, his memorial, it was kind of like a, it was a who's who of, of just famous national movers and shakers, country stars, you know, old school famous managers from the 80s, record label presidents, all that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, so I, I was kind of doing the rounds, talking to everybody. And I was kind of, oh, wow, Nashville. Yeah, I haven't been here in ages. You know, wow, I, I almost moved here. Wow, my life could have been so different. I'm, but you know, I'm happy where I'm working in the mountains. I met Morrissey's then tour manager, who was a guy that I had also met busking here in like 20, I want to say 2007, maybe. And he just approached me and he said, Hey, let's catch up. Let's get some, some dinner. We went, got dinner. He said, Hey, you know, what are you doing in two weeks? Do you think you could come out to Sydney, Australia and just help me on this Morrissey gig? The guy that was in that position, we had to fire suddenly because he put the band on the wrong train in Spain on a tour. And so they, they were late for the gig and we just fired him on the spot. I said, whoa, okay. First of all, Holy shit. First of all, okay, not a great intro to how stressful <laughs> this might be. Second of all, I don't know anything about this job. Third, I am a committed, I'm committed to this to this camp gig. I mean, summer, the, the, the session is just around the corner. At that point, I was like the... I was like the associate director of the camp. Yeah. So, you know, we had had a few drinks. So I, we were, I thought we were just, you know, just kind of spitballing. Fly back home. He sends me a formal offer. I talked to the director, who's a, who's a friend of mine, an Australian guy who I lived with. I said, man, because he was asking, like, how was it? You know, was it kind of intense? You know, your, your mentor and being back. And I was like, yeah, you know, it was. And, you know, I, I just got to share this happened. I met this guy and, he, and I guess he really wants me to go to Sydney. And the direct, as I mentioned, director was Australian. And uh, he was like, what? I was like, yeah, it's totally crazy. He wants me to go and just help him out, like tour managing this, this band Morrissey and everything. I was like, oh, from the Smiths? I was like, I guess. <laughs> he's like, let me see the offer. So we're looking at the offer. And he says, you got to go. And I was like, what? I was like, we're about to start. He's like, you just got to go. You know, we can wait. Find I'm sorry to interrupt you. This is an amazing story, but you weren't really familiar with Morrissey at this point. Man, I so I I still to this day am not familiar on things that I should that are pretty obvious because yeah when because there was such a deficit of exposure to music and to art yeah. and culture by yeah. default when I kind of went out and just plowed my own sort of course I keep in mind it was again no internet there wasn't Spotify right. nothing so I would discover stuff from like when I lived in D.C. I was living in this uh, religious community for a year. I, I kind of followed this girl out there. And so there was this Brazilian bookshop. It was the one spot I could get to on a bike from this kind of really remote religious community. And, but it was all like Brazilian books and music. So I got really into Brazilian song for a while. <laughs> there was no, I don't know what agency was guiding me, if any, but you know, it was very hard to find stuff. And also music was expensive back then. It's something yeah. else that, talking to people nowadays. It's like, you know, every, music is free and it's so widely available and there's there's so many interesting and fun ways 
to discover music. This podcast is a fine example. I'm not talking about algorithmically generated. I, I'm not a big believer, you know, in the, in the machine reality and algorithms. I just, you know, as I mentioned before, in search of soul and soul elements, this, that's just the opposite. You know, I don't want to go on a, a tirade about that, but yeah, it's just not for me. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Nowadays, there's so many great ways to discover music. When I was discovering music, which was kind of the window from maybe 16 to 26, a good solid decade. Yeah. And then I sort of kind of, I feel like I sort of calcified a little bit. And, and then and then it, I also kind of let myself off the hook because I realized there are decades, you know, every, every seven, 10 years, the music trends drastically change. And there's always undercurrents, little niche, niche things. But I gave myself grace. I was like, if the music trends suck, then give yourself 10 years off and just go listen to the music you listened to <laughs> in early college and wait for the, the trends to get cool again. And so I've done that a couple of times already. I mean, when the whole, I kind of missed the whole emo thing. And it's kind of like, I just kind of like took a break from new music for while that was <laughs> going on. Yeah. And now I can go back and I can discover some things I like about emo, but I was like, I, I, had, I had really gotten into punk and like post hardcore and hardcore and like some kind of, some kind of metal and i was like when i saw the emo thing coming out and especially when it got popular that was yeah i'm such a contrarian you know I, I think i was just raised that way you know my parents really wanted us to think for ourselves and be independent thinkers and what that means is you're questioning everything all the time and it's hard to turn that off so you become sort of just a contrarian to everything automatically hey do you like this it's a really amazing cheesecake well i is it? I don't know. I've had some pretty good cheesecake. It's like, <laughs> yes, it's a good cheesecake. Dude, I can so relate to that. Hey, real so, quick. because It was it, hard to find music. Zoom's about to cut us off oh, because okay. we don't pay for it. Can Do you mind clicking on the same link if you've still got time? Because I... Yeah. I uh, this yeah, yeah. is so wonderful. If this so, it went yeah. good when it kicks us off. If we'll just click the same link and we'll just keep going. Okay. Hello again. Hello again, dude. Thank you. As I always do at this point, I want to remind our Patreon, our our, our folks uh, listening, that we have a Patreon, and if you join it, maybe I can pay for Zoom and not have to do this every time. So Patreon.com/slash Marinade Podcast, everybody. Just as little as two dollars a month, and you get a Patreon exclusive content, and maybe I'll get to pay for Zoom one day and not have to ask our guests to re-click on the link. So okay, so. I, I kind of interrupted your story because I was so fascinated by that. And it's so interesting to me uh, that your musical education, so to speak, kind of came, it was so un, un, non-traditional, right? So, you know, whereas- started. Yeah. yeah. So I, I didn't discover, you know, I, I didn't, I, I still to this day, there'll be just sort of gaping holes of things that might be pretty obvious for just about everybody else. And, and you know, so I, I'm, I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to cover some ground. For sure. Yeah. Okay, so you get that offer to go to Australia. The director of the camp is like, "Dude, you got to do this. It's more so right. like so." Then you go. What is that experience? Because because the other thing, this probably this probably served you well, I guess. Your lack of knowledge about it, because you know Morrissey's got a reputation of being like pretty difficult to deal with. You know, so I, I wonder if you had known that, if that would have affected your decision. You know, especially after you told that story about the guy getting fired for that one mistake. Um, it's just it really interesting to me, like that your sort of, you know, maybe lack of knowledge at that time may have impacted your decision, to, you know, whether or not to go. Right. Well, that's exactly right. And I didn't know anything about him or, or you know, I think to put it into perspective, at that time I was listening to. 
uh, well, my my roommate, the Australian camp director, he was really in, he was really into metal. So I mean, we we're going to see like Mastodon. I mean, I was just sort of in that world. You know, I was really into Faith No More at that time. I I, I remember. So I didn't know anything about Morrissey or the Smiths. I hadn't really gone in that direction yet. Yeah. But yeah, I think it. I think it probably would have, you know, but I was, I was young enough where I was still kind of really open to whatever. And I wasn't, I don't think I was afraid of being super stressed out, you know, or, or afraid of being challenged. Maybe, uh, you know, as I've gotten older, it's kind of, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a little more protective. It's, and I think it's because I, I, I threw myself through the ringer, I think more than most people I know just, just for kicks or just for whatever, just for the, just for the story. But I think t more to the point, you know, my, my mom had just died. Mm. And so, I mean, that was, she died at midnight on new year's Eve. And then, you know, Al, my mentor died unexpectedly three months after that. So I was kind of, and then I got the offer just right on the heels of that. So I was kind of in a weird headspace as it, as it was, I mean, I don't even really remember much about January to through March of that year because I was just sort of, it was a dead of winter in the mountains. I mean, there, there it was cold and dark. You know, snow would blow under the under the door door jam. I mean, it was like there was. I just I kind of was just looking for a for a for a lifeline. So this offer came along, and I, I had the blessing from my friends at, at the camp. So I just kind of went into it thinking, you know, maybe this will just kind of propel me out of this 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 heavy funk you know and uh i guess in a way it did you know in a way it, it did but it, it was very stressful it was you know i thought i was gonna get fired every day for the first year ended up staying for five years you know? oh and, wow that long i did not realize that yeah, wow I a long time and and the guy that replaced me lasted 12 days so yeah. then, well that was so that was about three years in and then I was like, hey, I'm, I think I'm going to go. I think, I, you know, I think I want to go try my, my own hand at music, which is not something that had occurred to me. Uh, this harkens back to a, an earlier question. I've always done music, always loved it. I've been very hesitant about turning it into anything more than that, because oftentimes it can be, it can turn into a drag. And it's like, you don't want that to happen to something you really love. So I've, I've been, I've been very hesitant to ever do more than just do it for myself. But I'd, I'd done three years. I'd been to a hundred and something countries with them. And I mean, there are countries where he gets mobbed by people on the platform of the bullet train or people camp out in front of his hotel for a week. I mean, it's Beatlemania shit that just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it's, it's kind of the last last of, of, of a generation in that regard. So I had seen so much and I, I think I'd gotten, I'd healed up enough or I'd, I'd written some songs. So I wanted to give, I wanted to give it a shot doing my own thing. I really wanted to move back to Nashville. Well, the guy that they brought in to replace me lasted about 12 days, left in the middle of the night, didn't even take his bag with him. So I, they called me up and I'm frantically from Sweden and said, hey, hey man, can you, is there any way? Yeah, so I, I came back in for another two years <laughs> and uh, eventually left and then got, and, and by then I, I, had, I, had, I had gotten some chops with tour managing. I'd met enough people where, you know, then I kind of slid into Lucinda Williams camp and, and, and then when COVID hit, I, uh, Jason Isbell, you know, I, I, I started working for him here in town and, you know, I think if it hadn't been for COVID, I probably would have, probably would have just kept tour managing, you know, it, it's a comfortable, 
life, it's good money, as opposed to being a starving artist where it's, you know, it, you're not really making any money. And that's okay. I mean, I've never done it, anything just for the money. But the tour managing thing was a comfortable gig. I got pretty good at it or good enough, you know. And, you know, I mean, Lucinda says I'm the best tour manager she's ever had. She's also got a reputation, I think, for... And I, and people say that to me, like, some of these artists, you know, you've worked with some difficult artists, and I, I don't I don't really think they're difficult. I find normal people to be difficult because the mm. boredom is overwhelming. Ah. <laughs> But uh, I think it really, it it's reminiscent of growing up. You know, my mom was probably the first artist I really managed as the eldest sibling. So it was something I was already sort of used to, even though I had to learn about gigs and about production, about tour buses and tour budgets, things like that. But uh, there was something you mentioned that is very much the case. Not knowing anything about these artists allowed me to learn about them in a way that very few people will yeah. or can. And it was the way that maybe I needed to, because I was hearing the music of Morrissey through the backstage wall as I was doing shit backstage or I, in a conversation as they were eating dinner or we were on a tour bus together, all of us. And I learned so much from those guys and his guitar player, uh, Boz Borer, who's kind of a legend in his own right. He was another mentor to me, and they taught me so much about music, but how music really is art and how that isn't just something you're doing when you're on stage or in the studio or writing. It's something that is a lifestyle. It's, it pervades everything that you do and everything that you are, and I'd never even considered that. So it was kind of a, it was very much a master class in writing, in how you compose yourself, in touring, in traveling. And obviously, I mean, I think the influence is pretty evident. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, the, the, the songs on Violencia, I mean, I really, it really stuck with me, you know, the, what, what Morrissey does. It, he's, he's very brilliant, obviously. And I, I, you know, just sort of by being in the room, I was able to glean just a lot of, of, of what he does and, and how they are as a band. And that really made an impact on me. And that sort of circle was complete when I, worked with Lucinda because she she's like one of the old blues people and you know the the terminology is blues men you know they're one of the old blues men but that's there were there were so many blues women at the time but there just wasn't I mean it was hard enough for you know the blues men to to find an outlet but blues women had even less of an outlet it's only coming out now that there were brilliant you know women singers and writers and performers of the blues as well yeah so, but she is in that tradition she is you know, just her, her, her trajectory. And, and, you know, she eventually became friends and, you know, she even, she lives in this neighborhood, but she, and I don't know if you've read her book, but it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty cool book just came out, but she, I mean, she, I, I, I was always, I always walked around the blues because I knew it, it kind of wasn't for, it wasn't for me. It wasn't, I didn't have any ownership in the blues. It was, it almost felt like mm. first to try to do any, so I didn't even sing blues. I didn't even sing like a blues scale. I, I avoided blues notes because it just felt so, it felt so not authentic to what I do. So I was, and I didn't feel like I could ever even pretend to, to be part of what the blues represents. She was my gateway into understanding the blues and she, man, she broke it down for me so hard. I mean, she had me, she introduced me to the writings of like Frank Stanford. I mean, we would stay up late into the, into the night on a tour bus drinking red wine discussing uh, Flannery O'Connor, Carson McCullers, the Southern Gothic. I mean, 
it it went so deep for me. And that was kind of the final rounding of the, the thing, because Morrissey's doing it in something similar in a very British way, in a, in a way that's kind of very highbrow, in a way that's very philosophical. But the Southern Gothic thing is very street level. It's talking about some really dark, fucked up shit in a way, though, that it, they're just talking about it in a way that that they're finding ways to cope with it and to live with it, which is the probably the the heartbeat of what the blues represents in a sense, not non musically. And then the music reflects it so well because it, it you have to break all the rules. It has to be something that you can just break down and strip down until there's just the core. And there's all there's always an element too of, I mean, I mean if you it, like Faulkner, you know, or I mean there's always an element of almost tongue in cheek sort of, you know, it's or, or Mark Twain certainly, you know, it's like yes, we're talking about the most miserable elements of our nature. That's how far we've we've allowed things to be stripped down here in the South. And yet we're finding ways to live and we're finding ways to laugh. You know, love, love, love is, a, is kind of a tortured subject in the blues, which suits me very well. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, why I ended up with violence. It was because I was able to just learn at the feet of these. Well, not, I mean, you know, it was just by being in the room, just by, just by being al allowed to, to, to be in this master class. I, it was the education that I was really looking for all those years ago in college in philosophy yeah and, and music was able to kind of be the gateway to to learning those those things that i'd always felt you know how do we because my 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 upbringing was very southern gothic it sounds like maybe yours was too i mean a lot of people for sure it's so miserable but there's no way to talk about it and and it, there's no there's no way to make sense of it but in, in in the blues or in music in art all of a sudden it takes shape in a way that you can understand in a way you can wrestle with Dude, I I got chills, and I'm sure people listening to this are gonna feel this too. When you're telling the story about staying up with Lucinda Williams on the tour bus, drinking red wine, that is the most romantic scene in my mind. Like talking about life with Lucinda Williams on the tour bus, drink. I don't know that it gets any any sexier to me. I don't mean like romantically sexy. I mean like tr like uh, romantic on the you know sort of global i as a global idea of romance that is what an awesome opportunity and you and you mentioned that like how you're getting this education you know because one of the things i wanted to ask you about is violencia and how like these characters in these songs are so rich and chaotic there are messy relationships throughout this thing um it is and, and which is you know a huge reason why i was so drawn to it right um and, and why i continue to be so drawn to it um some of, but they're they're so rich and chaotic but they're so relatable like the the series of lines in backyard party mda where like where he's the narrator saying like can we pretend i said something more charming instead you know those and then like there's and there's like three iterations of that uh, different variations of that line and it's just like, dude, I, I'm they, I'm a hundred percent there. I've been that character before, right? Um, I, less and less so as I get older, but uh, and hopefully wiser and shut my damn mouth more. But I've been there, and most of us have. Um, and it's, I, I, I was gonna ask you about those, but it sounds like this rich life that you've lived and this access to these folks who are true legends. I mean, Lucinda Williams. Morrissey and Jason Isbell, uh, Al Bonetta, these are true 
giants, right? Legends, people who have had, I didn't even know who Albanetta was. So I started doing this research. And once you start going down that hole, man, what a life. I mean, what an interesting cat. And then, of course, you know, Morrissey and Isbell and Lucinda and their influence on music and popular music, I mean, uh, is just undeniable. And for you to have that access, now I'm kind of seeing it. That coupled with that upbringing of yours, plus your own talents and curiosity, it makes so much sense to me that your record sounds the way it does. That That is, I think you've, you're the only person including myself who has been able to make sense of what the record is and just what in what you just said because i it's it's hard for me to even describe what's happening i mean yeah. I can talk about it musically and that's about as far as i've gotten but working through it with you today it's kind of like okay that it, it's it's pretty clear now what it is and thankfully we've made sense of of sake of years to, to to get to figure out what this is but yeah it's you know it's the southern gothic characters for millennials you know, which you have to factor in, you know, disposable reality, thanks to the internet and technology and the just the, the rampant just and available drug use that's just prevalent. And then, you know, with the the kind of certainly the Morrissey backing and then, you know, my classical and uh, just my sort of classical upbringing. That's that's where the music really is, is, is just the, the kind of classical. I like to rock, but I was like raised classical. So I've always been trying to like combine them. Mm. all record is and i'm just so grateful that i i had such a weird path but i, I mean talking to you now it's like i had such a weird path of course it's going to be a weird record yeah yeah well that's i kept describing it to to folks as a wild ride right i kept saying it's a wild ride that's the only thing i could think of to say because i was like i don't know how, how to describe this I, I don't you know i it's a wild ride but now hearing all of this and and, and getting to connect with you like it is the logical conclusion, or at least at this, you know, of 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 those experience of those experiences. It's the logical uh, amalgamation of those experience. And expression is the word I'm looking for here. Expression of those experiences and those relationships that you've had, um, and it all makes so much sense to me now. And for folks listening, if you haven't listened to the record, as soon as you end this podcast i want you to go listen to the record because i feel like that would be such a wonderful companion to this um more so than most conversations i feel like i mean i i've had the great fortune of having some wonderful guests and i've always been proud of this work but dude yeah this was something else <laughs> this is awesome thank you i gotta so give you much. a high five i gotta give you a virtual <laughs> high five because that that's that's good journalism right there because <laughs> I, I wasn't even really sure where it's, it's hard to talk about but that really is what it is. And it, it, oh, it, it kind of gives me a sense of relief because it, it's just nice to know that I was able to turn all of that weird, all of those weird years into something, I almost said culpable, into something palpable. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm myself and people I know, we're sort of in, in the background of as characters and we're the characters that are being subjected to the treatment of that Morrissey backing, that Southern Gothic for millennials, that sort of just weird modern, that, that weird modernity that we're all just sort of enmeshed in. And it's hard to make sense of, but it's also fun and very easy to just partake of, you know, that the drugs and the internet, it's just, it's so yeah. prevalent, but it's just, it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to understand. And yet it, it's, it's fun and convenient and cheap. And then, you know, my, 
I was, I was finally able to, it was the first time I'd written in, on the piano in, uh, well, since I was a kid. So, cause I'd always written on the guitar. And so to sit at the piano, all those songs came out and I was finally able to make the piano rock. So I finally, thanks to <laughs> you, can figure out what this is. <laughs> That's awesome. I am so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad I could help provide that service. I feel like you Thank did you. all the heavy lifting, but I'm, I'm grateful that I'm getting credit here. Um, dude, this has been such a pleasure. We usually it really end it on uh, what we're get, what you're getting down on. So that's the art that has you inspired right now. Maybe uh, a samba record that you've been listening to, or <laughs> <laughs> what, like a book you've been reading. Like, it's what are you fired up about right now? What kind of art has your attention? Well, I've I've got the E.E. E. Cummings complete works from the mm. Free National Poetry Library. So that's my favorite spring, kind of early summer poetry to read so I've been just enjoying just taking 20 minutes on three words in, in that and just pouring over that listening to Demis Roussos uh which I got on vinyl uh that song uh uh forever and ever which is just a beautiful song you, you'd probably enjoy that it's just it's it's unparalleled as far as vocal performances and then I've also got uh Asnavour by Charles Asnavour uh which is someone Morrissey turned me on to and uh I, I never even, I mean, I'm just so grateful, you know, I, I mean, I make, I make it sound like I was, I, I feel more like I, I was a thief, you know, stealing all of these, these, all this wisdom in these places, but I, I guess I'm just grateful, you know, I, I they turn me on to everything from Charles Aznavour to uh, uh, like Echo Belly or the New York Dolls. I mean, they, 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 their, their musical acumen is just, is so diverse. So yeah. Asnavour by Charles Asnavour, which I don't think there's a digital iteration of. Okay. I thought that I'd be able to find on Spotify. And then, uh, yeah, E.E. E. Cummings. Perfect spring, late spring, early summer listening. What, where would you recommend starting with Demis Roussos? Um, I would say, uh, give me two seconds. I'll pull, I'll pull up. I'm yeah. I'm sitting right here. Cool. And, uh, the whole the whole record is pretty psychedelic. Yeah, this record, I'll show it to you here. This this record is really really cool, and the the titular track "Forever and Ever," side A track one is just brilliant background vocals, a brilliant uh, vocal performance from him and he apparently was very popular everywhere but in america which kind <laughs> <laughs> of like charles asnavour too no one knows who he was but i mean th these people were as big as elvis if you look at coverage and if you look at airplay back then which was huge and then uh physical sales which would have been you know vinyl records for both of them and they're they're both just massive and they're incredible and it, it's just so it, it, you can definitely sense there's a different cultural root uh, than what we have here. And it's just nice to diversify. You know, you listen, yeah. everyone listens to so much music. It's like if you only drank one type of wine, it's like, I like Cabernet Sauvignon. Well, you can keep drinking the same bottle and, and keep enjoying it. But it, it, all of a sudden someone hands you an orange wine or a really crisp, dry Riesling. All of a sudden, okay, well, I didn't know I was going to get challenged today, but that, you know, I, I try to diversify as much as I can. And music, it seems endless. And every, every time I take a break when the new music's kind of, I just, I can't adhere, adhere to or find anything that I can't 
find anything that to listen to, I go back and it's like there's still so much music to discover in the past. Yeah, which is, which is incredible. I think that's one of the things, not necessarily with the pat the point about the past, but one of the things that I'm really grateful for with the publicists that I've established relationships with is that, like, yes, if if you look at the list of guests I've had almost 90% of, of the musicians I've had fall into a broad Americana umbrella. But the publicists who know me, like Josh from All Eyes Media, shout out to Josh, like that he's who's great and has been so good to the show. They, folks like Josh know, like I, he knew I was going to like your record, for example, uh, right? Like he, he, he knew it was, it was an intentional, it was very clearly an intentional pitch that he knew I was going to dig this and that, you know, I guess you could technically call this Americana, but I, I, I don't know what, where you put this. And that's the beauty of it that we've discussed that for the last hour plus is like how there, it's so nice to get access to those things because it's so easy with the algorithm to get stuck in a beautiful rut of just Jason Isbell sounding kind of, you know, uh, recordings. I, I'm not complaining about that. Um, I don't, you know, give me all the Ryan Bingham in the world. But um, at the same time, you know, I have never heard of Demis Russo's until this moment, and I'm so stoked to dive into it. I'm with you, man, because because with technology, as you touched on, it is so easy to get into a um, as as much as it should open the world, it can also shrink your world so much. And I'm really grateful for conversations like this, and for um, folks like Josh, for example, who are you know getting me into other things, the things that are outside of that um, sweet spot for me or comfort zone, you know? Right. I think, and I think we, furthermore, I think as technology becomes even more, certainly more intelligent now and certainly more, even more prevalent, you know, for example, I mean, your refrigerator can be hooked up to your phone. So wild. Hooked up to your, you know, you remote start your car. It's hooked up to your Netflix. I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of magical if you think about it that way, you know, it's like a Ray Bradbury story, but at the same mm -hmm. time, at what cost? And I know a lot of greater minds than mine are beginning to consider that, but as it pertains to art, you know, for example, you would never find that Britney Spears fan page <laughs> that I discovered in the early internet. It just doesn't, it, it, there's no place Yeah. because, you know, people, are, more people, if you think about it, especially with emerging economies, and emerging middle middle classes in like China, India, and elsewhere, Eastern Europe, you know, more and more people are getting hooked up to the internet. People are going to just consume what's in front of them. Think about it. You're going to watch a movie. What are you going to watch? Well, it's going to be something on Netflix or it's all whatever it is. Hulu. It's going to be on one of these things. You're, you know, when you would go to, you know, Blockbuster Video, you might yeah. walk out with the Toxic Avenger. Yeah. You know. And that I don't know if that still exists. And with music, it's like the same thing. You're only going to get to consume what's trending. You're only yeah. going to get, and, and and but you're also imbibing the message. You're imbibing the 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 worldview. And it, it's not getting more diverse. It's getting more and more sort of hyper focused on just a couple trending whatevers. And so I think we have a responsibility as users to diversify as much as we can and to stay connected with each other outside of, of that in, in the real world, because that's going to be the thing that retains our sense of humanity and our sense of soul, because it's slowly ebbing away. I mean, just if you listen to, to the music that's trending right now, 
and then you listen to Demis Roussos and Charles Aznavour, they would they don't exist in the same universe, and that's a shame. Mm. That's a yeah. shame. Dude, I remember you you just took me to a very specific place in my life. I remember being at Blockbuster Video in Ocala, Florida. Uh and this would have been my, my senior year in high school where I'm really starting to get try to get into things outside of my reality, outside of the country radio that I was raised on and you know, some of the and and some of these things and, and the cultural sort of um norms that I was raised on. And I remember seeing the cover of Darren Aronofsky's film Pie. Yeah. I remember seeing that and thinking that. I'm drawn to this. I don't know the first thing about Darren Aronofsky. I want to say it was his first film. It's definitely the first one. So. Yeah. yeah, definitely the first one I'm aware of, you know? So, I, but I remember just seeing that and then reading, you know, the, the back and being like, I'm going to give this a shot. And it just opening up so much for me in math and philosophy and religion and filmmaking and all these different things that that film um you know and and just and that experience happened because i'm walking around blockbuster video right and i I think that's the beautiful thing about the resurgence of vinyl um i mean it is yeah and and see and i'm really into cds too so like i love like going through used cds and finding somebody that i'm like i'll take a five dollar chance on this right like even if or that's an artist that i've been wanting to get into I could dial it up on Pandora or Tidal or wherever, Spotify, but I'm not thinking about that when I open up my Pandora or Tidal or Spotify. I'm thinking about it because I see that physical copy right there in front of me. And that's one of the beautiful things about the resurgence of, of vinyl and now even CDs to some extent. Because it does, like, I got I picked up a Ramblin' Jack Elliott CD uh, about a year ago, something like that. And I was like, this is one of those artists that I don't know the first thing about that I should quote unquote know a lot about. Right. Um, and that was my entry point. Right. I mean, cause I otherwise wasn't, it was somewhere deep in the recesses of my, of my consciousness that Ramblin' Jack Elliott's somebody I need to dial up and get into. That's cool. Yeah. And it, that, that's, that's really intentional. And that was, that was how it used to, that used to be the only way to do it. And it, and there was a magic to that. And I, that's really cool that you've been able to preserve that. That that's pretty inspiring. Uh, yeah. And it's kind of, it's kind of leaving a little bit of room for that magic to guide you to something that, because let's face it, it's probably not going to come up, you know, on Spotify in right. the same way that when you go to watch them, you know, the things that are really popular now, you know, and the things that are getting pushed to the consuming public, it's not pie. It's not Darren Aronofsky necessarily. It's going to be, I mean, he just did the whale, which was awesome, but yeah, I loved it too. You know, it's going to be Spider-Man 8. It's going to be yeah. the, the next Marvel movie. Like, that's the stuff that's that's being mass consumed. But if people had, and it's simply because the algorithm has that, that level of control over people's habits. Yeah. People don't have the wherewithal or maybe even the knowledge or maybe the, the, the energy to go outside and say, I'm going to spend an hour at the thrift store going through CDs. Yeah. Magic happened. I'm going to go to a, to a, with vinyl, it's always been kind of a collectible thing. So there's that. And it's nice that that's becoming more widespread. But discover the discovery part goes away. And I'm I'm very I'm very distrustful of of how small the window is getting. Like, yeah. like if you Google anything, the results are are so based on your buying habits. It's so based on your demographic. It, I mean, we're ba- we're basically being digitally profiled by these people who want to sell us something. And yeah. as a result, you know, the window of what the information that we're able to access. You know, when people say, oh, the information, you know, it, the, all of the information is accessible out there, to, you know, thanks to the Internet. 
Uh, not really, because I mean, the way that we're accessing information, I mean, think about it, we're using Wikipedia, which is, is, it's not very detailed information, you know, it's not like reading a book, it's not like going to the library, it's not like having a conversation with someone, you know, and, and, and the same applies to music and, and other forms of art. So it, and I think what, it, I, I hate to sound like a, cons a conspiracy theorist here, but I think mm -hmm. what's happening, you know, when you talk to people, it's, it's dumbing down our sensibilities when it comes to art and when it comes mm. to the diversity of art. And I think that's dangerous. I a hundred percent agree with everything you just said. Um, and I think that, you know, and of course we're all trying to figure out how to navigate those waters as we need, especially yeah. those of us who make stuff, right. We need right. the internet in order to, to promote that stuff. Speaking of which right. are there, uh, is there vinyl for the new record and do you, what do you have physical copies of various sorts that folks can buy? Oh, let's see. So um, that's actually a really good point because I never promoted anything and I never was going to put anything out. Thankfully, uh, Cavity Search Records, shout out to them, came along and he was someone that the president, Denny, uh, and, and co-founder, he was someone that had I'd been on his radar. He's been a fan. He's come to see me play on, in the Pacific Northwest. And just sort of as a labor of love he has just sort of coaxed me out of my sort of self-imposed you know retirement <laughs> before even starting <laughs> before even start but i never would have i never would have gotten online i never would have put anything out if it wasn't for him and then jim and josh at all eyes media um i was able to kind of approach those guys through lucinda because i was sitting next to jim you probably know jim he's josh's he brought josh onto all eyes yeah and he's a he's an awesome guy. But I was sitting next to him at the Ryman for Lucinda Williams, and we got to talking, and that was how that happened. But I never would, I would never have put anything out. I never would have promoted it. I'm still terrible at it. I still don't know where I land on it. And you you had a very good take on it, which is we're we're all, we're all trying to learn how to do that. And I think yeah, we are we're trying to learn to do that in a way that is not too gross and is sustainable. I I don't I don't know how or, or what that looks like. I don't I know some people. Kind of have it figured out. I think Jason does a pretty good job. Yeah, Jason as well. He does a pretty good job. He does his own socials. You know, I think he's 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 got a very good level-headed approach to to what he does. I think it suits his music too, and it suits his his the mythology of who he is and what he does. I don't. For me, I'm still trying to figure it out. It's very new to me to to be doing it at this level. So, um, but the label ordered some special edition box CDs tonight. Tonight is actually the the CD release show. Right on. For you. They can see. I, I never heard of anything like this. I, I have no idea what this even is. Because we were talking about how uh, a friend let me borrow um, the box set from the Smashing Pumpkins when I was 17, and it changed my life. Uh. And it's like, you know, box sets, that's something there's not really a digital equivalent to. And he, he got to talking. So he, he kind of cooked this up. I don't really know what it is. It's a box. And it's the Violencia box. It's just a, It's just the one CD. But then it's got this other art in it that's got like excerpts of the lyrics, and oh, cool! You put it together and it forms. I, I haven't even you, you piece it all together. Anyway, oh, so cool! It, that is a physical thing. It, it send me your if, email me your address or I'll, I'll, I'll gladly send you one if you'd like. I mean, if you if you have CDs, I, I would. I'd, I'd love, love that. Yeah, yeah. Let me know. And then uh, I just got the test pressing of the vinyl. Okay. And. I was not prepared for what it sounds like on vinyl because the loud, aggressive parts, which are like half of the record, 
sound really loud, really aggressive, really noisy, really in your face, so dissonant and discordant. I'm like, this is like a punk record. But then the softer moments are even softer and even more delicate. And the melodies are even more, I think, contrasted. So it on vinyl, it takes on a whole new life. And I wasn't, I I had a friend that, that and uh, I was telling someone else about this, because it's only like 30 minutes long. So, and it just mm -hmm. like, you through and it's over you're like what was that yeah <laughs> i turned it right back over because i was like what just happened <laughs> like, <laughs> i let her borrow the uh i have two test questions she has a she's got a killer rig down she's actually down in florida too she's down in uh uh santa rosa but she's got a killer setup she's back from europe so she flipped it back she's like i don't it just I don't know. I had to flip it back over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great, man. Well, I'm glad they did that. CavitySearchRecords.com. It looks like there's a few. Um, you can get American Dreaming LP, it looks like, and the other, and then digital downloads of some of your other work, as well as the CD and LP of Valencia. Dude, this has been so this is an all-timer. And I this am is great, man. I'm so grateful. I mean, I I feel so um my, my creative cup is full. Like I want to go make stuff now. You know, I want to yeah, sit down and write. Me too. So. I'm feeling inspired also. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, have it, man. Have fun tonight. And all right. Um, dude, I, I'm pleasure. sure I'm sure we'll likewise. I'm sure we'll connect down the road as well. I hope so. Thank you so right. much for doing what you do and uh all the best as you transition careers and just keep Thank living you. on a small rock in space. <laughs> Thanks, man. All see right. I'll see you. Take care. Bye. The truth is I lied when I said I was fine I'm so happy I think I might die I'm so happy I think I might cry Jesse Daniel Edwards, y'all. Thank you so much, Jesse. Thank all of you for listening. Jesse Daniel Edwards.net for all things Jesse. CavitySearchRecords.com to get physical copies of the new record. The song you're hearing in this episode is I'm So Happy I Think I Might Cry from Violencia. Give it a spin. Get yourself a physical copy, y'all. MarinadePodcast.com for all things the marinade. You can find written pieces, photography, our online store, and more. Follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Spoutable, and Twitter. Subscribe and give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Tell a friend about the show. These are all free ways to support the marinade. If you really like what we're doing and can swing it, please consider joining our Patreon community, y'all. Over on Patreon for just two bucks a month. You can gain access to Patreon-exclusive content like our show, Jason's Journey, where I talk about the moments that shape my creative life and provide a window into the process of making the marinade. Y'all, you can now try a free trial of Patreon to see if you like it. No pressure. Try for seven days. Set a reminder on your phone in case you want to cancel, and then keep going if you dig it. We also have a monthly show called What We're Getting Down On, which is a conversation between me and my good friend Peter Haraldson, where we talk about the art that has us fired up at the moment. Our Patreon means so much to us. It's a deeper way to connect with these conversations. And then also things like me getting to go cover Bonnaroo just don't happen 
um, if I not for our Patreon patrons. So thank you so much to our patrons. Y'all, if you want to support the show financially, but you don't want to commit to a monthly subscription, I totally get that too. You can Venmo or PayPal us at The Marinade, and all the money goes right back into the making of the show. Above all, we are just so thankful that you listen and you spread a word, spread the word about the marinade. Until next time, go out and create something. Cheers, y'all.